Good morning. Good morning. It is good to see you all. Welcome to Conroe Bible Church. I have just a few announcements to pass your way. Um, the first one is for the men. This coming Saturday is men's breakfast at McKenzie's Barbecue at 8 a.m. Um, if you have not already, put a reminder in your phone and uh, get up early on Saturday and come and join us. You will not be disappointed with the barbecue or the breakfast. Um, company subject to debate, but go ahead and come anyway. For the women, this coming week, there are two things. One is on March 18th is bingo with a twist up here at the church. And then the next day is encourage her at Debbie Call's house. And you guys, men and women, can find the, the details for all of those activities on Church Center. Um, and you can look at that anytime on your phone or through the website. Um, also, at the beginning of April... We will be having our second annual Love Does event, which is an outreach into our community, and it is going to be three days long this year, with the first day consisting of opportunities to help individuals, and the second day us teaming up to help local ministries that we partner with, and then the third day is celebration up here at the church. You have to sign up to be involved, and you can do that on Church Center on the Love Does event, um, and you can indicate there when your availability is um, and how you'd like to be able to help. And if you have questions, you can contact Mandy Hodge with those questions. Also, one of the opportunities through Love Does this year is an opportunity to request help. And that is available to, to you all, but also to people within your circle um, of influence to be able to love and minister on. And so if you have neighbors who have needs, um, you can sign up uh, for them or have them sign up to request help with, with small things. You can see the details on that sign-up sheet. Um, and you can find that link to that sign-up sh uh, sheet in the Family Connection email. If you didn't get that, you can also find it on the sign-up of the Love Does event on Church Center. And if you can't figure out how to get either of those, please come and see me. I would be happy to help you. That's all I have. Um, let's stand together, and we will uh, begin our time of worship. All your worth, we fall 
All these 
We just humble ourselves before you. We give you all the praise and glory this morning. Just so grateful to, to be here, be able to worship you, a congregation that is one heart, one mind, one body, one soul, Lord, focused on, on you and your greatness and your glory. Father, just uh, I pray for our church leaders, Father, as they, uh, as they seek you first in all decisions, Lord, just continue to give them the strength and the endurance and the patience and the passion that it takes uh, to do this daily the, that you have called them to in accordance with your will, Father God. I pray for the message this morning, Lord. I just ask that it dwells within us, that we carry out beyond these walls, Lord. We take it into the community of the lost and the hurting and the broken, Father. Uh, the searching, we, we know uh, what they're searching for, Father God. Just help us to be ready to give account of the, of the glory and, and the joy that we have found in Christ Jesus, Lord. Fulfillment of the Great Commission, Lord. We just ask that it starts here and it starts with us. We humble ourselves. We are your servants, Father God. In your holy name we pray. Amen. We have the privilege this morning of uh, what's called a child dedication. Uh, we, we often say it's probably more properly called a parent dedication, uh, but it's a great time. It's, and it's an, a great time to do as a church family because this involves the uh, grace of God being lavished upon these children. So we have Christopher and Jennifer Nelson with uh, Piper and then also Bo. And Bo is the one we're going to be dedicating today. And then Brandon and Eve Stark with baby August. And uh, baby August, if you remember, was in NICU for a few weeks, and uh, it'll be three months and, and about another week or two, right? So anyway, we are glad that you guys are here. I would like to uh, read a passage from Psalm 127. Thank you. 
it reminds us of uh, cherishing, cherishing, cherishing children and of the uh, wonderful gift that they are by God. And this is what Psalm 127 says, Behold, children are a gift of the Lord. The fruit of the womb is a reward. Like arrows in the hand of a warrior, so are the children of one's youth. How blessed is the man whose quiver is full of them. They will not be ashamed when they speak with their enemies in the gate. This ceremony does not convey salvation to the children. They are still responsible to respond to Christ uh, by faith. And they, uh, but they are uh, blessed by this ceremony because of God's grace. First of all, they've been born into these families that love Jesus. And then uh, secondly, uh, they get to hear about Jesus at an early age. So we are going to uh, pray over Bo first. If you would join me in praying for him and his life and his parents. Hey, buddy. Let's pray. Dear Jesus, thank you so much for this young man. We thank you, Lord, that you're the one that crafted him in the womb. And you designed him not only in your image, but exactly the way you wanted him to be. And we thank you, Lord, that you've, you've given him to Christopher and Jennifer. We thank you that he is their child and that uh, you have put him in a home that loves Jesus. And we pray that he would come to know Jesus at an early age. Pray that you would give Christopher and Jennifer great stamina as parents, great strength, great understanding and wisdom as they not only discover his gifts and talents and abilities, but seek to shape him in according to your word and according to your grace. And we pray that you are honored throughout the process. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Thanks. Okay. Then baby August, let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you so much for August. We thank you for uh, bringing him into this world uniquely and preserving his life. And I thank you for the protection that you offered. We thank you again that he is your handiwork. And we pray that you would be with uh, Brandon and Eve as they discover how you have crafted him, his personality, his temperament, his gifts, his talents. Pray that you would give them wisdom and insight as they uh, raise him and nurture him according to your word and according to your grace. We ask that you give them uh, great stamina and we pray that you would keep them close to you, Lord, that your love for them would overflow to August. And we pray as well that he would come to know Jesus at an early age. And we give you thanks, Lord, that um, you have brought him into this home that knows you and loves you. And so we pray your blessing upon them as well. We pray this in the strong name of Jesus. Amen. Thank you, guys. It's wonderful. Thank you, guys, very much. He's, uh, oh, we need to dismiss Sunshine Kids Club. <laughs> Kindergarten through grade five heads out through this door. And again, if you're a guest with us, feel free to join them, to check in your children, to get to know the staff 
that is out there, and that's where you will pick them up. It's always a joy to celebrate uh, with families and young children. Legalism sucks the passion out of a relationship with Jesus Christ. Legalism prevents some people from coming to Jesus Christ. Legalism emphasizes external actions over internal attitudes. And Jesus is not a fan of legalism. Throughout the Gospels, we see his confrontation with Pharisees, with scribes, with various religious leaders that have placed rule-keeping on a higher level than relationship with God. And he goes after them and doesn't always have great things to say. Legalism is a temptation for all of us because it is much easier <laughs> to structure our lives, spiritually speaking, to come up with a checklist of what it means to be a believer on a daily basis or a weekly basis than it is to keep building a relationship with Jesus Christ. And so for some of us, over time, it becomes laborious or we feel like we're in a one-sided conversation with God. And so we kind of just check out and, and we you know, decide, hey, we're going to keep minding our manners. We're going to live a good life. We're going to go to church, read the Bible, say a prayer now and then. And if we're really good and really proud of ourselves, uh, we're going to give ourselves a gold star at the end of the month. And that's checklist Christianity, where our hearts are no longer engaged with Jesus Christ. And again, it's a temptation for all of us. I, uh, you've heard us say up here that uh, I think it's often the default mode of a follower of Jesus Christ. And it's something that we have to face often and have to be intentional about our relationship with Christ. Legalism always starts out as a sincere pursuit of holiness. So I'm not saying anybody just comes to Christ, comes and gets excited about what he has done in their lives and the forgiveness they've experienced, and then all of a sudden just decides, okay, that's good enough for me. You know, hell is canceled, heaven's guaranteed, and, and so I'll just kind of go through the motions. No, it usually starts with a, a strong desire for holiness. And then I said, as I said earlier, we begin to drift away from that. Uh, as Paul says in 2 Corinthians 11, one of Satan's greatest desires is simply to distract us from the purity and simplicity of devotion to Jesus Christ. So legalism is a temptation that we all face, and legalism is before us all the time, and Jesus deals with it in Scripture. So today we're going to see grace in the context of legalism, we're going to see a breath of cool air in a stifling hot attic. We're going to continue this sermon series on understanding Jesus. Hello, my name is Jesus. Do you know him? 
And it's our desire to get to know him, to enlarge our understanding of him, not only so that we will know him better, but so that we will love him more deeply and so that we will follow him more completely. That's what we're doing in this sermon series. And today we're going to be in Luke chapter 15, a very well-known passage. It's the passage of three parables, the lost coin, the lost sheep, and the, the prodigal son. And what we're going to see is Jesus, the distinctive nature of his joy and the tenderness of his grace. And it's my prayer that he speaks to all of us, whether you find yourself as a prodigal needing to repent and return or as a legalist, because that's what the older brother is. He's represented by the Pharisees here. And so we want to look at Luke 15, and we're just going to look quickly at verses 1 through 10, or broadly, I should say, where we see that Jesus is distinguished by his joy. Jesus is distinguished by his joy. He has a personal encounter here at the beginning of Luke 15 with religious leaders. We're told they are the Pharisees and the scribes. And they have come to him and they have accused him of being less than a rabbi. The optics are not good because he is eating with sinners and tax collectors. He's enjoying a meal. He's a good religious leader. And a good religious leader would never be with people of that nature. Well, Scripture provides a picture of our Savior who is genuinely joyful. We see that throughout Scripture. And we have to admit that we don't know his nature completely. But we do know that God delights in his people. Zephaniah 3.17 is clear that he rejoices over us with singing. We live for that day when we can hear the words, enter into the joy of your master. And in John 15, after talking about abiding in Christ and the obedience that he calls for fruitfulness, Jesus said this, these things I have spoken to you so that my joy, the joy of Jesus may be in you and that your joy may be full. Our savior, our Jesus is distinguished by his joy. I bring that up because he is going to encounter people who are not distinguished by joy. In fact, they're disgusted by his joy. And they would be the straight-laced, frowning spiritual leaders of the country. We discover in the first verse here of chapter 15 that Jesus is approachable to the rejected reprobates of the day. The religious outcasts of his day are drawn to his joy. They're drawn to his personality, full of grace and truth. And that interaction draws the ire of the religious leaders. This is what we read in verse 1. Now all the tax collectors and the sinners were coming near to him to listen to him. Jesus is approachable. They like grace and truth. They like what they're finding from this rabbi. And they would be the ones to stay very far away from Pharisees and scribes. Tax collectors were those who were disliked by the Jews because they collected taxes, for one thing. But worse than that, they 
were part of the Roman government. They worked for the Roman Empire, and they were reminders not only of the corruption within the Roman Empire, but the oppression of the Roman Empire. And so Pharisees even had a rule that they would not let the skirt of their robe touch a tax collector. They did not want to be in their presence. And then sinners. Sinners were not those who were necessarily totally immoral in sin, but they were definitely those that were considered, they were even called the people of the land, those that were considered people who had given up on being faithful to the law, God's law. They were considered unfaithful. They, they were considered not even interested in that again. And so they were outcasts. Again, the, the Pharisees and the scribes would say, no, you, you can't associate with those people, and especially not over a meal. Meals uh, show some form of acceptance and fellowship. And, and Jesus, you should not be with people like this. These sinners and tax collectors, they liked Jesus. They sensed that Jesus cared about them and that he had something to say to them. They knew their need and they were glad for his love and his grace. Brendan Manning used to tell the story of a rabbi named Levi Yitzhak who said he came to understand the love of God better through two Polish peasants. He said one night he went into a pub and these two peasants were sitting at the bar and they were glorying in their cups. They were drinking away and they were protesting to one another how much they loved each other. When Ivan said to Peter, Peter, tell me what hurts me. And kind of bleary-eyed, Peter said, how can I tell you what hurts you? I don't know that. And Ivan said, then how can you tell me you love me if you don't know what hurts me? That Polish rabbi, Levi, got a better understanding of God's love. These outcasts were drawn to Jesus because they sensed that he understood them, that he knew their triumphs and their tragedies. He knows what hurts us. We cling to passages like Hebrews 4 that remind us that we have a Savior who has experienced all that we experience yet without sin. And so even in this direct occasion, this encounter, Jesus was one who had experienced and was experiencing rejection by the religious leaders, the sinners and tax collectors and prostitutes, the outcast, societal and spiritual, new rejection by the spiritual leaders of Israel. And they knew that Jesus cared about them and had something to say to him. They were drawn to him. And I think you and I would call that grace. But his joy is obvious. Jesus offered the medicine of salvation to those who were sick of their sin. And that's where these outcasts found themselves. Well, in verse 2, Luke reveals the encounter of the Pharisees with Jesus. Jesus is joining the religious reprobates for a meal. And a learned rabbi should not be seen with such. This is what Luke writes in verse 2. Both the Pharisees and the scribes began to grumble. 
saying, this man receives sinners and eats with them. Whereas the sinners and tax collectors were drawn to Jesus' joy, the Pharisees are disgusted by it. They don't want anything to do about it. And I just love this term, grumble. Because when we say that legalism, which describes the Pharisees and the scribes, they wanted to keep God's word with very strict adherence and rigidity. They knew nothing about relationship. We said external actions become more important than internal attitudes. And so we work on this checklist of good behavior and living a clean life. But we have to deal with things internally like pride and arrogance, critical spirit, being judgmental, and that leads to grumbling. So I think we have a perfect capture of the description of the Pharisees here, even in verse 2. Note the derogatory sense in which they speak of Jesus, this man. They're certainly not going to give that he's a Messiah. They don't even want to say that he's a rabbi, that he's a learned teacher. They just say, this man. They're still going after him, though. Over the course of 160 years, from when they were first founded, the Pharisees moved from a genuine pursuit of holiness to this strict adherence. It's just the default mode of humanity. We, we move to that which is structured. And when we do that in terms of spiritual things, the life is sucked out of it and the relationship begins to dissipate. They had moved to a place of measuring holiness by external actions. So they elevated external actions over internal attitudes. It's much easier to mind our manners than to keep from having that judgmental spirit. They were self-righteous in their behavior, and they looked down their noses upon everyone else. And so at this point, I want to ask you if you have ever wondered if Jesus was ever tempted to become a legalist. Now think about that. Was he ever tempted to become a legalist? Now, of course, we would say, well, he is full of grace and truth, and every action we see just exudes grace, and he lavishes grace upon us. But if there was ever a time that he was tempted, going back to Hebrews 4, right? He was tempted in everything that we are, and we're tempted to be legalists, yet without sin. I think this would be the time, because... You know, when you read scripture, you put yourself in the different characters and you think, how would I react? And so if I was Jesus, I would challenge these guys to keeping the law. I would just say, you want legalism? Let's be legalistic. I'll challenge you to one month. Let's see you can keep the law better. Okay, one week. No, okay, one day they're protesting. One minute, I will keep it. I will fulfill the law better than you ever could. Because it can't just be external actions. It's got to be internal attitudes as well. I think if there was ever a time Jesus was tempted to be a legalist, this is it. He could destroy their confidence and arrogance. And you know throughout the Gospels that Jesus had a, a lot of anger and frustration, righteous anger toward the Pharisees because they were keeping people away from God. They were putting heavy burdens upon the people with all these rules they had to keep. Rule keeping had become more important than relationship. 
And so he had words for them like, you're a brood of vipers. You guys are the blind leading the blind, spiritually speaking. And yet, in this passage, we see Jesus full of grace and truth as he addresses the legalists in these parables. He wants them to see joy. He wants them to know and experience grace. And so he's going to move in that direction. On this day, he reaches out to inform them, not only God's attitude toward sinners and, and outcasts, but toward legalists, toward Pharisees and scribes. Jesus had set himself apart as one who had come to seek and to save the lost. And he's going to tell three parables now here in a row in answering this question. And the theme is joy throughout all three. He's setting himself apart as one who seeks joy and brings joy. And each one is connected by the, the terms lost and found as well. And so we have in verses 3 to 10, or excuse me, 3 to 7, we have the lost sheep. You remember the 99 righteous, the shepherd goes after the one lost and rejoices when it is found. Then in verses 8 through 10, we have the lost coin, and the woman loses a coin, and she searches. These things are valuable, and, and they find it, and, and there is a celebration. And Jesus uses both of those parables to say this in, in Luke 15, verse 7. There's more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than 99 righteous people who need no repentance. Jesus is rejoicing that the lost people of Israel are finding forgiveness and the sinners are finding salvation. And he wants the Pharisees to know that we seek these people and we bring them grace and we rejoice when they turn to Jesus. Now, the attitude of the Pharisees, of course, was quite different. And instead of thinking there will be joy in heaven over one sinner who repents, they would say there will be joy in heaven over one sinner who is obliterated by God. Isn't that sad? That judgmental spirit that is just crushing. Legalism choked out their ability to offer grace and mercy. But that's an attitude that develops even with us, isn't it? Sometimes we look at others and say, you know, you don't really measure up. I'm not sure you're walking with God. It's natural for us to take little sniper shots at, at people. And when you feel that to rising up within or you hear that from yourself, you can be certain that you've moved toward a critical spirit because you're judging external behavior. And you might even wonder about your relationship with Jesus in terms of per pursuing that loving relationship and enjoying his love and peace and joy. Have you moved away from him? Sometimes it's a, a little warning sign that God gives us to let us know we're moving that direction. Well, Jesus was distinguished by joy as he interacted with the religious leaders, as he interacted with the religious reprobates. He cared for the outcasts, and he offered them salvation. 
He attempted to help the legalists understand that this is what we do with people who need God. When that didn't take hold, then he told another parable, a third parable. And this parable would directly involve the legalists as the main character. They're the older son in this prodigal. But more importantly, it reveals the tender grace which Jesus brings to relationship, which he offers as he approaches the lost, no matter their status. So in verses 11 to 32, we see that Jesus tenderly offers grace to the legalist. Grace to the legalist. There are three main characters, the prodigal son, the older son, the father. In the parable, the father is God, is representing God. And I would even go so, so far to say is Jesus is using that as representing himself because he's the one that is in contact with the Pharisees and the scribes. He's the one that is answering their question. The third parable here in verses 11 to 32 is often called the prodigal son. But that's just one portion of it. It's, it's probably better called the loving father, the grace of God, because that's what ties together the two sons as they are approached by the father. And so we are informed more about Jesus and come to a better understanding of him by looking at the father here. We get a glimpse of the heart of God. So let's look quickly at the younger son. And then we'll look at the older son as he relates to the father. Verses 11 to 24. In the first portion, we get the story of the younger son. He demands a portion of his inheritance, his portion, much earlier than it was to be offered. It's like saying to your father, I wish you were dead. He takes that money and he runs to a faraway country. And he spends it lavishly on himself. And he squanders it. And you know the story. He is, uh, famine comes on the land, and now he's hired by a pig farmer, of all things, for a Jewish young man. And he is serving that pig farmer. And he's out of money, and he's out of food, and he's wishing he could just eat the pods that the pigs eat. And he thinks to himself, you know, my, servant, my, my dad's servants back home, they eat better than me. I, I am wrong. And I'm going to go back and apologize and just beg him, beg him, because we're used to earning things, right? Beg him to let me be a servant. That would be far better than living here in a foreign land with no money and no food. And so he returns. And the father does not condemn, does not shame him. In fact, the father offers grace and mercy. Isn't that incredible? Grace and mercy shows up in the tenderness of the father with the younger son. The son knows he is wrong. He knows he needs forgiveness. But he can barely get out the apology. He can barely ask for forgiveness before the father has esteemed him and honored him and welcomed him back home with a tender embrace. This is what we see in verse 20. So the father, so, so the son got up and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, the father saw him 
we get the idea that he's standing at the end of his property watching for his son on a daily basis, perhaps, and felt compassion for him and ran and embraced him and kissed him. The father is looking for the son. And he does something no Middle Eastern man would do. It's completely undignified. It breaks with all convention for an older gentleman to run anywhere. But here he is running to his son. And there is an embrace. Literally, it fell, he fell on his neck and kissed him and kissed him. And then he brings out the best robe, the one that would go to the notable guests. And he brings out his ring, restoring his sonship and authority. And he gives him sandals. Servants don't wear sandals. And the son is, is taken aback by all this. But in this parable, God is revealing for us his love and his joy and his eagerness to shower us with grace. His desire to celebrate those who repent and return to him. Philip Yancey has a great definition of grace that I like. I think it's simple. I think it's beautiful. He says this, that, that grace in grace, there is nothing that you can do to make God love you less. And there is nothing you can do to make God love you more. Simple words, powerful words, words worthy of meditating on as you meditate on scripture about grace. In this parable, we see the son, the younger son, who has done all he could to make God love him less, to make the father repulse him, push him away, prevent him from coming home. But the father offers grace. And in the older son, we're going to see a son who is trying as hard as he can to make the father love him more. But the father doesn't do that. The father offers him grace and truth to help him deal with his attitudes. The older son is the legalist. He's the one who believes he has kept all the father's rules, kept them perfectly, and is entitled to what the father owes him. And again, I, I think most of us fall into this category. If, if you're running from God as a prodigal, it's time to come home. And there's nothing you have done that could make him love you less. Return, let him embrace you. Seek his forgiveness, be forgiven, and restored to full fellowship. If you don't yet know Jesus, place your faith in Jesus Christ, believing that he died on the cross for your sins in your place rose from the dead, victorious over sin and death, and your sins will be forgiven. He will enter your life and give you the free gift of eternal life. You will spend eternity with him, but he will lead you here on earth. That is grace. But we also see grace offered to those who know Jesus. And I think most of us fall in that legalist category if we had to fall in one of these two. And so if you are the older son, be prepared to be loved. But Jesus, who is represented by the father in this parable, in verses 25 to 32, let's look at the older son's attitude. 
He is caught off guard. He has worked a normal day in the field. He has done whatever he is responsible to do, and he has led whoever he is responsible to lead, and he has come to the house that evening. And as he draws near, he can hear music. He can hear the laughter and the dancing and and possibly see it and the great shouts of joy. And he's really curious, what's going on? So he pulls aside a servant and he he says, what's going on? And the servant tells him, you know what? Your brother has come home. And your father is so excited, we're having a party. He's killed the fattened calf. You know that one we keep for special occasions? We're having meat tonight. And there's a party. Come join us. You're going to love this. And every word the servant says causes the chest of this older son to tighten and his jaw to set. And he begins to get a headache because he is so mad and angry about what is taking place for this younger brother of his, this reprobate. The older son reacts with fierce anger, with self-righteousness, total lack of concern for his younger brother. This brother wants justice. What is justice? Well, that's where you get what you deserve. And this younger brother, he, he deserves a lot because he ran off. He shamed the family. He dishonored everybody. He wasted everything. And he wants to come back here and take more of what's really mine now? No way. We see his anger. We see his attitude throughout. He's mad. He's jealous. He sees injustice in how the father reacts, believes he's been treated unfairly, and he refuses to go in. This is what we read in verse 28. But he became angry and was not willing to go in. And his father came out and began pleading with him. The older son's explanation is next verse. We get an idea here of how he relates to his father. But he answered and said to his father, look, it's literally look here. For so many years I have been serving you and I've never neglected a command of yours. And yet you have never given me a young goat so that I might celebrate with my friends. You see that he believes he's done a great deal to further the father's property, material wealth, kingdom. We see that he thinks he's done a great deal to make the father love him because that's the bottom line here trying to please the father at home he wants more love and by love he wants celebration he wants honor he thinks the father doesn't recognize his worth and that's the mindset of a legalist instead of serving alongside each other he he views his father son relationship as one of master to slave i have served you i have kept every commandment that you have given me to do that's a bold statement isn't it the older son finds it hard that the father believes him the, the, the father loves him and when we focus 
on our efforts for God, we often develop the same attitudes toward God and toward people. You ever feel that rising up within you? God, I've done so much. Why is my life in the toilet right now? I serve you. I seek you. I go to church. It's natural. And that's what's going on for this older brother here. Well, the father's going to address the older son's attitude. And if you're identifying with the older son this morning, then uh, let, let the Lord woo you back with his grace and mercy as we look at what the father did for the son here. Jesus is not just eating with sinners and tax collectors. He's talking to the Pharisees who are grumbling. He's going to emphasize five things that the father does here. First of all, the father goes to the son. His father came out to him. The son is angry. He's very angry. And I'll be honest, when I'm around angry people, I get angry at them. And that's not helpful. <laughs> Chuckles of recognition. It's not healthy. And yet, it's natural in the flesh, right? This father doesn't do that. He doesn't react that way. This son is standing on the patio. He's proud. He's angry. He's self-righteous. You know, just think about family dinners you've had with friends over or maybe extended family on the holidays, you know, and one member just doesn't make it. Just something's gone sideways and they stomp off to their room. They slam the door so that everybody's aware of where they are. And so the temptation is just to use your authority, right? Yell, hey, get back in here. We're a family. We do this together. We're going to have fun. But the father doesn't do that. That wouldn't be tender. That wouldn't be an, an approach of grace. It might be necessary at times. But in this parable, Jesus, as the father, goes to the son he goes to the legalist, and I, and I think that's just incredible. Isn't that the same thing he did with the younger son? He was waiting for him. He ran to him. He embraced him. Jesus pursues us. We've seen that before as we enlarge our understanding of him. That is so wonderful. And, and here we're seeing that he pursues us with grace. So the son's on the patio with his arms folded, and he's not coming in. He's He's angry. Father comes out. He's not going to condemn him, son, his son. He's going to beseech him. And that's what we see in the next phrase. The second thing the father does is plead with the son. His father came out and began pleading with him. I think this word was intentionally chosen by Jesus for the parable to contrast with command. I've done everything you commanded me. And the father in his tenderness and his grace and his love for his son does not command him. He goes to him and he pleads with him. He entreats him. He appeals to him. The father does have the right to command. He can say, I have authority here and I command you. But that mindset would, those words would reinforce that mindset of the son. This 
master-slave mentality. And the father in the parable didn't do that because he's not after performance here. He's not after the right external behavior. He wants to restore a relationship that obviously is gone. The son views him differently. He wants to deal with internal attitudes of anger and pride and self-righteousness. But he wants a new relationship with his son. The third thing we see is that the father speaks tenderly to the son. The father said to him, son, most versions of the Bible, including mine, have the word son here, but it's a different word from the, the word used earlier with younger son and older son. This is the word, my child. And so again, it's a tender word. It's not a belittling word. It's the tender word that, that evokes images of my boy whose diapers I changed. My boy who I taught to put on his robes. My boy, my child, the one I love, my oldest, my firstborn. The tone of the moment is tenderness and grace. The fourth thing the father does is he says, you are always with me. And the father said to him, son, you have always been with me. The problem here is that the son didn't care about that. He didn't care. The younger son came to his senses, said, I need dad. I need forgiveness. I need to go home. If I could just be home with my father, instead of around all these people that don't care about me in this foreign land that I thought would be an awesome place to be, I'd give anything to be with my father. And, and so in, that, in light of that, the father says to the older son, you're always with me. You're always with me. But that didn't matter to the older son because he wasn't interested in the relationship. He was interested in, in doing everything right so that he could get what he was entitled to at the end and have a place to sleep and get the inheritance. But there was a deep void in this relationship with the father. He lived with all the privileges of the father. He lived in the home. He ate meals with the father on a daily basis. He was the heir of everything that was left. But he's not happy that the younger son has come home and he's angry with the grace that is showed to the younger son. The son didn't love being with the father. And that was an internal attitude that had to be adjusted. The final thing God does to express his love for legalists in this parable is the father says, all that is mine is yours. Jesus looks the Pharisees in the eye, the ones who represent the older son, he looks you and me in the eye. He says, all I have belongs to you. He's affirmed the special place in his heart for the older son already. We've seen that. He's affirmed the older son's faithfulness. He reminds the son that all he owns belong, belongs to him. And neither the father's activity or the son's return is going to take away any status. The father is not unfair to him. In fact, he says... You've always had access to all the animals, to celebration. What do we know as followers of Jesus Christ? We know that we possess every spiritual blessing in Christ Jesus. Ephesians 1.3, we know from 2 Peter 1.3 that 
the Lord, by his divine power, has given us everything we need for life and godliness. All that God has, he has given to us that we might be able to follow him, that we might be able to grow in this relationship with him, that we might be able to see our hearts changed from the inside out so that we don't just strive for external behavior, but we see attitudes of anger and pride and self-righteousness dealt with as we become more loving toward God and toward others. These are Jesus' tender words for the Pharisees. And it's his word to everybody who is bitter and hard toward sinners. And one of the great tests as to whether or not you and I love grace and mercy is not have we just experienced it, but do we love it to be shown to others? You know, it's interesting in this passage, verses 31 and 32 just end with the father's words. We're never told how the older son response or reacts we're left to wonder and i think part of that is the climax is given there so that we become the rest of the story so that we decide how we're going to respond to the grace and mercy of jesus christ will we let him continue to transform us as we walk with him, as we pursue him, as we listen to him through his word and prayer, as we join with the community of believers? Will we take his grace and mercy to show toward others? Because now it's our decision. Now we are the ones that must decide, what are we going to do? Are, are we just going to emphasize external behavior and let our insides go nuts? Or are we going to love others and love Jesus and let him change us from the inside out. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for the privilege of knowing you. And we thank you, Lord, that certainly for the Pharisees, uh, whom we know that uh, we're not your best friends, you reached out with grace. You gave them a story to ponder and to think about. And we thank you, Lord, that that story is alive today because your word is living and dynamic. And because our lives need to hear from you. And so we ask for grace to respond to you, whether we're in the position of the younger son or the older son. We need you. We need your forgiveness. We need your life. We need your grace and your truth. And we ask that we would be kind to those who need it as well. In Jesus' name we pray.
shall soon dissolve like snow. The sun forbear to shine, but God who called me below will be forever mine. Will be forever mine. You are forever mine. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Forever worship Christ. 
Thank you for being with us today. Have a great week.